Welcome to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. In this series, I get to talk to names you'll recognise from your bookshelves, your radios, your TVs and more, and get an insight into who they really are. This podcast is about peeling back the layers of our guests' fascinating lives and discovering how heritage, culture and family have all played a part in what they consider home to be. Each conversation I have with the people on this podcast will be centred around four key elements. Those are a person, a place, a phrase, a plate. And so one of them for me, and this sounds super basic, but a phrase that really kind of solidifies this feeling for me would be dad. Obviously, sometimes I hear it and it's kind of like, dad, and they're moaning at me because I've asked them to turn off an iPad. Or sometimes they literally just say mum and then they say, oh, I mean dad, like when I'm standing right there. But it's a word that really sort of pulls me into that feeling of like warmth and the home and the family that we've created. And there's such a power and magic in hearing that word. But what are the things that give my next guest that same feeling? Let's find out. My mum always says to me, when are you going to get back to the kids? And they kind of look at me doing this job. (laughs) And my grandma, she says to me, just keep. Oh, that's like quietly, amazing. she holds my hand and says, <laughs> don't listen to any of them. Oh, wow. You keep doing it. She is by far the strongest human being I know. Today's guest is a chef, presenter and author. Having entered the sixth series of The Great British Bake Off in 2015, she ended up winning the contest after coming first in the technical challenge and wowing the judges with her show-stopping big fat British wedding cake. She has since hosted several shows on the BBC, is a regular columnist for The Times magazine and was even invited to bake a cake for the Queen's 90th birthday. And she's now got a brand new cookbook, which I can see in front of me and looks gorgeous. It's called Nadia's Simple Spices and is out now. You know who it is. A huge welcome to the amazing Nadia Hussain. Hello. Hi. I just like sat here with my head. <laughs> we were talking about how much you'd be sort of cringing and the fact that hearing all these lovely things about yourself is a kind of endurance test. Is it, that particularly true for you? It really, really is. I'm not very good at, when I hear these intros, I'm like, they're great, but I also kind of like think, can we just get this over with, please? Because... Nothing I, I suppose nothing I do feels like a huge achievement. It's just me just getting through life and yeah. just kind of trying to enjoy it. So I don't look at it like, because it's not the same as having a qualification. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's not on a, it's not a certificate. It's not on a piece <laughs> of paper. It's just this stuff that I do. So I suppose maybe if I can mock up some certificates, I might feel better about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. We'll get you one. We, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll print one out and okay. get, get some frames. Um, you have delivered today in more ways than one because you have brought baked goods. Yeah. Um, uh, not just baked goods. You brought some Procoras as well, but I've got in front of me. Talk me through it. It it's, looks amazing. It smells incredible. It's a shortbread, but you can see there's a layer in, mm, in that wedge. Yeah. It's a cottage cheese shortbread and I know that sounds everyone's gonna be like what is she talking about but that is just how my brain works when you bake cottage cheese in between shortbread it becomes fudgy 
Ooh. And it's just lightly spiced. And okay. then you've got shortbread that's grated on top. So you get a lovely oh texture. So I think you are going to love that with your cup yeah. of coffee. Just to paint a visual picture as this is an audio format, it is like a kind of, it's like it's got a crumbly top. It's dusted in sugar. It's like a sort of petticoat tails shortbread, but that's like exactly on steroids. Like it's exactly incredible. It. Um, okay, let's go. I know some people feel weird about eating on, on, on mic, but I've got to do it. Do it. Mm. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! You're absolutely right. That is so good. It's the kind of thing that you can have. Like you could warm it up a little bit and put mm. some ice cream on mm. top, or you could just dunk it in your hot coffee and enjoy that. But the best thing is, it's a really fun take on shortbread. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fantastic. And you're right. There's a chewy, mm. fudgy, intense little middle bit. We will come on to the recipes and your new book and. The way in which identity and home plays out in your food and the way you adapt things and that kind of journey that you have been on and continue to be on. But I always kick off by almost throwing the title of the show back at uh, the guest. Like, what is your initial thought? How do you kind of answer that question and how do you see it? Well, I'm always kind of drawn by, when I get asked to do podcasts, I'm kind of drawn by that first kind of initial what is this podcast? Mm. And instantly I was like, yeah, this is one I yes. definitely want to do. We so passed the test. You did. So, <laughs> because it's something that's gonna, that makes you stop. It's the kind of question that stops you in your tracks and mm. makes you think about whether you've ever asked yourself that question. And don't get me wrong, as a British Bangladeshi first generation Brit, I ask myself that question all the time. Yeah. But it's taken me 38 years to realise actually that home isn't a place, it's not a country, it's not a house. And it's not people. Mm. I spent so many years saying like, home is where my children are and mm. home is where my husband is. But actually, to really be happy, mm. home has to be with you first. Yeah. Like, yeah. truly, you have to be at home with yourself to be happy anywhere. And it's taken me that long to realize that if I'm unhappy and if I don't find home in me, mm. then nothing will ever fit. That's the deeper answer. No, you know, like no, that's, that's beautiful. And it's very true, I think. Countries change. Mm. People change. Yeah. Houses change. <laughs> Everything changes. And nothing can be relied upon. Nothing, mm. because it's ever-changing. Yeah. And especially people. Yeah. When you fixate on the people that you love, you can still love them and they don't have to be home. We're talking about people and so I wanted to jump right in on that why don't we talk about your person who are you going to go for I know there's a lot of different figures in your family and in your life that have really really had a vitally important impact so yeah, yeah who are you going to go for I think when I was asked the question I thought to myself the first person and pretty much always the first person that comes into my head is my uh, maternal grandma she is a heck of a woman um <laughs> And if I say that to her, like me, she will hide behind her hands and be like, no, don't be ridiculous, because she's not used to compliments. Mm. She didn't spend a life uh, being complimented. She mm. just got on with life. She is in her mid-90s now, recently been registered blind, very old, mm. um, but she is the most intuitive human being I have ever met. Mm. Like, she has grandchildren. She has great-grandchildren. She knows them. Wow. She knows their names. Yeah, and, that's incredible. And, and she knows it's me. What I find really incredible is that of all the, she's got loads of grandchildren, of all the grandchildren, how is it that she knows that when I walk into the house, <laughs> she knows my footsteps? <laughs> wow. How? I don't. That's incredible. To me, that does not make sense. I'm like, yeah. how does she know that's me? And I suppose 
I can't understand how anyone can love me that much. I mean, let's go back to the beginning. Mm. She has, she got married at 12. Wow. So I'll start even earlier. She was orphaned at four. Wow. Uh, raised by her siblings mm. uh, in a village. They had a tough life mm. um, at very little. My grandma always says, I don't know what it's like to have a full belly. Then married off at 12 because that's the kind of best way to give them security yeah. is to have them married off and yeah. know that they have husbands and they're in a secure sort of village. And this was in Bangladesh. And then she had eight children, four of which she lost. I ask her lots of questions mm. and she hates it, but I always <laughs> want detail. So yeah. it's the way she describes things. She said, just to give you an idea of how tough her life was, mm. she said, I had my very first menstrual period at 12 and I didn't see another one for eight years. Oh, wow. Because she had child after right. child wow. after oh, child. My goodness. She had a really tough life. Yeah. And then she came over to this country when she was sort of late, I'm going to say late 20s. Mm. Um, and she lived in this country and my and they lived in a crowded house. Uh, my grandma never, ever had an education, so she can't read or write. She lived her life looking at cans and trying to work. Trying to decipher. Yeah, kind of, trying yeah, to work wow, things out. Wow. My mum always says to me, when are you going to get back to the kids? And they kind of look at me doing this job. <laughs> and, and my grandma, she says to me, just keep doing it. Oh, that's like amazing. quietly, she holds my hand and says, don't listen to any of them. Oh, wow. You keep doing it. And she is by far the strongest human being I know. Mm. I look at her and the times when I feel like I can't do something, mm. I look at her and I think I'm doing all the things that she could yeah. have done or she should have done. Yeah. I get really emotional yeah, talking about no, her. no, I understand, um, yeah. And I actually dedicated the book to her. <laughs> I dedicated the book to her. Um, her name is... Anwara, which means pomegranate. Oh, wow. She's an incredible human being and she will always be my person. Well, as you say, what an amazing tribute and that sense of connection that that it could have been you, that it could have been your daughter and that you were growing up with this, this uh, attitude of questioning. Were you always very conscious of that connection and these stories when you were growing up in Luton? I was probably the most curious of all mm. the si all six. I'm one of six. <laughs> I think a lot of the time it was quite frustrating for my parents yeah. because they didn't always have the answers yeah. because I was asking things that were too loaded because essentially the reason why my parents are here is because they needed to survive. For them, it was wage to wage, yeah. um, paying the bills, mm. keeping the kids fed and keeping a roof over our heads. That was their purpose. Their yeah. purpose wasn't to dream. Their yeah, purpose yeah. wasn't to aspire, to imagine. It wasn't to to break ceilings. You mm. know, it wasn't. It was just to survive. Sometimes I will ask questions and try and get answers out of my parents and out of my nan and out of my family. And sometimes they'll give me the quick answer, but I know they're just doing it to get rid of me. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes yeah. if I can get my dad in the garden mm. and he's gardening or he's doing something like slightly mindful because mm. he loves gardening, yeah. then I can have really good chats with him yeah. because he'll say things that he wouldn't otherwise say if he's looking me straight in the eyes. Your story is one of being multiple things at once and turning that into this incredible kind of, you know, career and superpower really. So yeah, how's that relationship with like Luton? Are you a proud Lutonian, Nadia? 
Yeah, absolutely I am. I think I think Luton gets a lot of stick, can I just say. <laughs> yeah. um, of course I am. It's my hometown. It's mm. where I was born. It's mm. where my granddad decided that this is where our roots were going to be mm. placed. And so I have to have some pride in that. But I grew up in a very conservative, not a religious household, but mm. definitely like being Bangladeshi was very important to yeah. my dad. You know, yeah. like... You, he, you went back once a year, Yeah, right? we went yeah. back every summer. Mm. Uh, and one year we went and lived there for a whole wow. year almost a whole year wow um, what was that like did oh you... my goodness it was magical <laughs> oh amazing oh my goodness it was wow. magical um, why why because that because that could go a number of ways how old were you first of ten. all 10 okay yeah. oh my goodness it was yeah wonderful. and what was what was it was, was yeah what was it in particular about it that was magical that oh kind of... it was I was out there and my paternal granddad was mm. literally my favorite human at mm. that time I didn't think I could love a grandparent more than my nan and yeah. then I was like went out there and I was like my dad that was amazing yeah, yeah. and he was the kind of person that if you slept in <laughs> And it was sunrise and you hadn't prayed and you hadn't got out of bed. He would get straw, would set it light and he would put it under the door and choke you out of your bedroom. Wow, that is incredible. So he was a powerhouse. <laughs> and he uh, he was a rice farmer and a buffalo mm. farmer. And I would help him. We lived through the whole se- the entire rice season. Wow. So I was able to see how he um, worked the land and mm. how he turned the soil, how he waited for monsoon season mm. to end so he could grow the rice and... Like all of it, like from start to finish, Amazing. it was such a beautiful process to watch. So every morning I would wake up with him and he would say, you need to be up at sunrise. <laughs> and I would be up, like no smoke, no straws, nothing. Just I was, patting the straw yeah. just so that you know. like. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was up and he would he would knock three times. And if, he said, if I knock three times and you're not out, I'm not knocking for you again. Wow, wow. It was very stern. We're talking about Bangladesh and I think we should probably first of all hit on your place like what your place is what are you going to go for is it Bangladesh is it is it going to be like back home is it you know we've had people get it as specific as their friend's step so you can go as small or as big as you like but what came to mind when we asked you to name a place that kind of really uh, crystallizes this sense for you my place would be Bangladesh, mm. um, right outside my granddad's village, um, mm. his house in particular. I say village because the entire village is my granddad's family. Wow, wow. Um, just to give you a scale of how big my family is, I'm one of 67 grandkids. <laughs> no, that's one of those things that you look at on Wikipedia and you're like, that must be a typo. Nope. Like someone's been nope. messing with nope. messing with Nadia's Wikipedia. I should entry. update it because it's probably 69. <laughs> oh, really? It's probably yeah, more, yeah. Probably more now. That's extraordinary. I thought I had a big family. So yeah, talk to us about this place. You've spoken beautifully about that year in particular and those trips back and the influence of your granddad. But the thing that was striking me was that it feels like this is related to your particular character and disposition that this sense of discipline and rigor and you need to be up and mm-hmm. you know that, that your that your granddad was instilling that in you there are there are some children that that would have been like hellish right but yeah. what was it about you that that really that it struck a chord did it that it spoke to you what what is it about your character do you think that that place and that that experience was um, so joyous i suppose probably because it's probably partly because I wasn't a teenager yet, mm. so I wasn't grumpy yet. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, I I always I think I was always really really aware of when we were in Bangladesh. It was short, 
Mm. We knew that this wasn't our forever home. Mm. We knew that mm. when we were there, we were there for six weeks yeah. or we were there for a few months, but it was always going to end. You know, yeah. we were still sort of, we knew our suitcases needed to be packed at the yeah. end of it. Yeah. So I think the sense that I knew that there was an end mm. made me really appreciate being around him. Yeah. And I never grew up with so my maternal grandfather passed away when I was mm. very small so I never had that kind of elderly man figure in my life and so when I used to be in Bangladesh I used to really really enjoy having that kind of um the patriarchal yeah. kind of man of the house yeah. because my dad worked a lot so yeah. I didn't see him loads so yeah. I think for me in some ways he kind of substituted for a dad because my dad worked really hard yeah. and he worked long hours so we didn't always see him so I suppose I saw a dad and a granddad in my granddad and he was so strict and I just kind of I'm I'm a huge people pleaser mm. and if somebody says to me that this is what needs doing mm. I will do that and yeah. so when he said this needs doing all I wanted to do was make him happy yeah. and that was like my life's goal when I was in Bangladesh or it was always to make him happy I would be so afraid that I would miss out on on taking the buffaloes out to pasture <laughs> that I would fall asleep outside his mosquito oh, net wow. so he would be in his mosquito <laughs> net and I would be eaten alive by mosquitoes <laughs> on the outside because I was so afraid wow. that I would miss out yeah. um but somewhere in the middle of the night, he'd see me and kind of put the mosquito net over me and tuck it under because he'd know, like, she's still going to get, she's oh, going to get bitten. That's beautiful. Yeah. You've got to have balance, you know, smoke them out with, uh, <laughs> with you know, flaming uh, bales of straw, but also protect them from the mosquitoes yeah. if they fall asleep. Welcome back to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. Today, I'm joined by TV chef, presenter, author, and excellent baked good bringer, Nadia Hussain. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your dish then. And this fascinates me, especially in the context of your new book, Nadia's Simple Spices. We can come to, to the reasons why and, and what the book's about. And it feels like a real reflection of home and how you really eat and how you grew up really eating. And we should definitely talk about that. But let's get your dish, first of all. Like, there's so many ways you could go with this, aren't yeah. there? It's kind of the... It's the it's the really challenging question. And it you... was really easy for me. Oh, excellent. Super we love easy that. Go on then. It was really easy for me. It would have to be my chicken korma, my mum's chicken korma. Mm. Now, when I say chicken korma, lots of people will think, oh, well, is this the kind of korma that you ha find at an Indian restaurant yeah, where yeah. it's like full of cream and yeah. cashews. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just say? It's almost a pudding. Disgusting. <laughs> I don't know why anybody would eat that because my dad once, I said, Dad, can I try the korma? And he goes, no, you don't want that. <laughs> He's selling it at his restaurant, right? No, you don't. He goes, no, you don't want that. What wow. dad was serving and what mom was cooking were two different things. Yeah. But you have to also remember that I think what lots of people don't actually know is that lots of Indian, majority of Indian restaurants in this country are owned by Indian families. Yeah. But they are run by Bangladeshis. By Bangladeshis. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. they have this kind of set menu and this is what they make. Mm. And it's literally not changed. Yeah, I, yeah. It, honestly, it irks me that after all of these years, they are still serving that kind of same sauce, yeah. different protein, <laughs> add a bit of coriander and yeah. we're done. I'm like, no. Yeah. My dad always said, this is not for you. Mm. My dad always used to say, wow. this menu isn't for you. That's really fascinating. I find that really fascinating because yeah. my dad used to say, this is not for you. Because when wow. I asked for the hook korma, he goes, 
Why would you want that? Yeah. I'm not making you that. You're yeah. not going to like that because he knows my palate. So yeah, it's like, yeah. he knows what I've raised, been raised mm. on. He knows what we eat at home. So a proper Bangladeshi korma starts off with lots of clarified butter. So mm. it's lovely and rich. Mm. So it's definitely a celebration dish. Yeah. It's not something that you would have every single day. Yeah. And it's so basic, so simple the way my mom cooks it. It's unreal that something with so few ingredients can have such... Uh, impactful flavor mm. and such a like it it's one of those things it's such a all over experience in your mouth it's yeah. like it's unreal you mm. can't believe that there are no ground spices it's all whole spices wow. and lots of onions yeah. so you get the sweetness from the onions um and you get and there's garlic and ginger in there mm. and then you've got whole spices so you've got cardamom cinnamon you've got bay leaves mm. and you cook it gently so gently that you can barely see the flame so oh. the onions never colour <laughs> yeah. so when they don't colour they get that traditional look of a korma that you mm. might see but there is no cream Wow. no wow. cream and then you cook the chicken with the bone still in which I know lots of people have issues with, but bone gives you flavour. Mm. So the bone's still in. It's a total game changer. I've done that before. Yeah, totally. I think it was like a Mira Soda uh, recipe that, yeah, was like bone in and it is amazing. Totally yeah. different. Yeah. And then you leave that and you let it cook. And like my mum would cook it two or three days in advance because a curry is best left alone. Like mm. once you cook it, cool it down, put it in the fridge, come yeah. back to it three days later. And that's when the magic really happens because <laughs> yeah, yeah. those spices have had time to kind of settle and yeah. kind of do their thing. It's my mom's chicken korma mm. uh, because it is literally to die for. It is the most delicious <laughs> thing. My kids absolutely adore it. Yeah. Um, and what the reason why I think it holds a really special place in my heart is because every single child in our family will have been, when they get to six months and they have to be weaned onto solids, mm. that is the very first curry they oh, ever eat. Because wow. it's not spicy, mm. it's got spices. And it links to the book. You were talking about it there, about the, the idea of introducing people to spice and using whole spices. Mm. And it feels beautiful. And the recipes are fantastic and it's kind of you all over. But it felt to me like something that maybe, not that you'd have had to like fight for, but I think I wonder to what degree you feel people say, oh, we want another baking book or we want this or we want this, mm -hmm. Nadia. And you have, to, you have to kind of mix it up to diversify. But also this feels very honest and like a representation of where you are now and almost like a kind of return to to what you grew up with is yeah. that right what i never want to lose is the essence of my cooking which yeah. is uh, making life making cooking fun mm. making it easy yeah. making it uncomplicated and giving people confidence in the kitchen yeah. Yeah. and there is Whilst writing this book, like one might look at it and say, oh, eight spices. Like, how did you pick the eight spices? Mm. I, I've got asked that question a lot this yeah, week. Yeah. And actually, I didn't I didn't pick the eight spices. My mum picked the eight spices. Right, my grandma right. picked the eight spices. Yeah, and, yeah. and my grandma before her picked the eight <laughs> spices. I didn't do that. I love that. They did that. Yeah. So this book was in the making decades ago. Oh, but I'm wow. just, I've had the privilege of being able to write it. Yeah, so yeah. it was literally the easiest book to write. <laughs> I was like in there. I was like, yeah, I got this. I wrote it so fast. Let us hit upon your phrase. Words are a beautiful connection to home and who we are and can kind of really unlock that feeling. What is the one that you've gone for? What's the phrase or word that you've chosen? Um, it's really tough because I was thinking phrase what's mm. what's a phrase that I use mm. or is it just word is it should I do something shall I say something Bangladesh or mm. some Bengali yeah, yeah. Or not? This, is the, this is the trick of it this is yeah. how we get you um, for me it was have you eaten <laughs> I love that and the reason why I say that is because 
I have been lucky enough to experience lots of different types of love. Mm. And somehow the world and maybe social media and maybe just this unrealistic world that we live in mm. that is portrayed through social media and through the internet. It's as if I love you is the only way to say I love you, mm. but it isn't. There are other ways to say I love you, like have you eaten? Yeah, Little things like that to me are I love you. It's taken me a long time to learn that because... I come from a family where I love you is not commonplace. It's not something that, you know, affection was not... I mean, my dad is very affectionate. He loves a hug and a kiss and a cuddle. My mum is the complete opposite. Mm. But my mum's way of saying, I love you, is have you eaten? Yeah, yeah. Rather than wanting the conventional love that you see mm. on television mm. and like pining over a parent who might read me a book at bedtime yeah. or, or or might ring me and say I love you yeah. or text me and say I love you. Actually, my mom shows love. My parents show love in a very mm. different way and that's mm. by saying, have you eaten? That's what I do. Like, I am very affectionate and I love giving my kids hugs and kisses. Yeah. But my first thing is, have you eaten? Yeah. And and they're like, yep, yeah, we've eaten. Um, every day, every day, have you eaten? And I'm like, of course we've eaten. You can see on our accounts at school that we bought lunch. Um, but that's my thing. Like, if my sister comes, yeah. have you eaten? Yeah. If I go to her house, have you eaten? Yeah. I hear that so often. But to me, have you eaten is, I love mm, you. That's so great. That's why I bring you cake. Yes, you did. <laughs> and honestly, it's a bit of love. Yeah, it was, it was serious love. It's a whole lot of love. I wanted to also ask about Bangladesh culture and mm. British Bangladeshi specifically mm. and the impact that, that that has had on Britain, the wider world. And I think it's an interesting point generally where where an immigrant group has been so embedded in kind of, you know, the, the fabric of, of somewhere like Britain. What do you see as kind of some of the some of the most positive things about the way that Bangladeshi culture has impacted British life and life around the world, really? Well, you know what, I think... I can only really ever, I grew up in a very Bangladeshi community. Mm. So I grew up in the heart of Luton, mm. just outside of Berry Park. Everyone was Bangladeshi. Yeah. One thing I really loved about growing up around people that I could relate to and people who knew my language mm. and people who looked like me was the fact, it was something that I've never experienced in any other community is the open door policy. Mm, wow. No door was ever locked. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Um, and I remember going two doors down. There were a family, Bangladesh family, two doors down. And I just thought she was my grandma. <laughs> and she wasn't my grandma at all. But I called her grandma. And we had a culture of, we have a culture of um, respect for the elders mm. that is something that is lost in the wider community. Yeah. Although my children can give me so much back chat, um, <laughs> if my dad walks into the room and there is an entire sofa free, and there's one person, like my son sat on it, he will get up to offer his seat to his <laughs> granddad. But that is something that my culture has given them. Yeah, that, yeah. You would not get that anywhere yeah, else. And I, yeah. and I can't speak for any other cultures. But I, can certainly, I can certainly speak for mine. Mm. And that is something that my culture has taught me and my children is the love and respect for mm. elders and the kind of adoration that you should have for them because they have a lived experience that they can give you that nobody else can. Yeah. And that's, takes me right back to, back to my grandma yeah, who yeah, is yeah, like yeah. she is everything that I want to be I yeah. want to get to her age and I don't care if I don't have my eyesight I will <laughs> say whatever I want and I can get away with it you know like that's the life I want to live so you have 
accomplished so much already in less than a decade, really. You're an author of cookbooks and children's books. You've got your own TV cookery series. You've got an MBE, (laughs) Baked for the Queen. What's left on your achievements list? Are there still things that you want to accomplish, uh, an unexpected daydream? Everything that I've done on the list was never planned. Mm. (laughs) And the best things happened when they're unplanned, I think. That's a very good point. None of it was on a schedule, on a list, or a five-year forecast. It was just (laughs) happened. It just all happened. And I know why it happened. It's because I work hard. I work really, really hard. And as long as I keep working hard, I just hope that I'm able to do this for as long as possible Mm. because my job is so much more than all of those things. Like, Mm. it's more than... Cookery, you know, it's more than cooking, more than writing. It's more more than any of that. You know, the most important thing is representation. More than anything, the thing that keeps me going, uh, keeps me fired up to mm. kind of walk through this career and to continue to do it is the fact that I represent stay-at-home moms, mm. immigrants, mm. Bangladeshis. I represent all of those yeah. different people. And I think it is all-consuming sometimes. Mm. It can be so, so tough. Mm. And when I started out doing this, my job was only ever really to be a good example for my kids. And I understand now that it's so much bigger than that. So when I think about that, I I try not to think about it because if I think about it, it's slightly overwhelming. But equally, it's not overwhelming because I am not really trying to be a version of myself that I'm not. I am just who I am. Like, there is no pretense. There's no act. There's no, like, whatever you see here is what my family see Mm. at home, what my kids Mm. see, what my parents see. Everybody just sees this version of me. That's it. Like, there (laughs) is no act. I know what it takes to be a woman of colour, a Muslim woman of Mm. colour, born in an immigrant family. I know what it what it means and what it takes to take up this space. Mm, it's mm, tough, yeah, it's hard, yeah. and it's relentless. Mm. And there are times when I think I never want to do this ever again. And mm. why did I do it? Mm. But in those moments, I remind myself how important it is to take up that space. Mm. And we have this affirmation in my house, and it's elbows out. Mm. Uh, create space. Like if you physically do that, you realize how much space you take up. Mm. And and I tell my kids, elbows out. Mm. Make room for yourself so you can make room for others. And essentially, that is what I tell myself: is that yeah, in those yeah. moments when I I feel like I can't and I don't want to do it anymore. It's like, no, elbows out. You are making space for people who do not see themselves in this space. And that is always going to be my driving, driving Mm. goal. Amazing. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for taking us on such a beautiful journey and for sharing um, where home is really for you and for this amazing piece of shortbread. This has been such a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness, that was incredible. It was such an emotional journey and just like packed full of so much wisdom and warmth and slightly concerning, hilarious childhood stories about Nadia's granddad's method of getting sleeping children out of bed with (laughs) flaming hay bales. It's such a strange thing because I think that, that maybe... Sometimes you're kind of like, oh my God, like, what is it about Nadia? But she's just got this kind of like magic quality. Um, She is so thoughtful and charming and determined and perceptive. And she was all those things and more. And there was cake as well, just to sort of top it off. She was brilliant. So we've come to the end of another episode of Where's Home Really? 
I'd love for you to join me next time for more fascinating insights and stories from our brilliant guest. And please do follow Where's Home Really on your favourite podcast platform. We read all your comments and love hearing your thoughts and opinions on the show, so please do leave us a review. And there is also a new home, see what we did there, for everything Where's Home Really related. Just go to wheresehomereally.com and check out our brand new website where you can find all my conversations with our fantastic guests. From Podimo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really, hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. Until next time.